Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And today we are very excited to have back on the show Dr. Hans Borsma, who's the St. Benedict Servants of Christ Chair in Ascetical Theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary and a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. He's written a number of books like Seeing God, Heavenly Participation, and Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew. And we're excited to have him on today to talk about his newest book, Pierced by Love, Divine Reading with the Christian Tradition. Dr. Borsma, how are you? I'm quite well, thank you. Thanks for having me again, Wesley. Excellent. Well, it's always a pleasure, always fun. Um, before we get into, into the interview, we have to say that Lexham Press has sent us an extra copy of Pierced by Love. Um, so we're going to have a giveaway on our Twitter. This will come out on a Monday, Monday the 29th of May. Um, and so if you follow us on Twitter and retweet the episode link, then um, that you can be entered to win an extra copy of this book. Um, it's a really good book. And I have to say, just like all the Lexham books, it is incredibly beautiful. They did a great job is, in terms of the aesthetics of it. Absolutely. I'm very grateful to them. They did an awesome job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every time they send me a book, I want to read it just because of how nice it looks, That's even right. if I'm not that That's interested right. in the topic. <laughs> it's a useless book, really, but but it's well done, right? <laughs> very pretty. Very pretty. Very pretty. Yeah. <laughs> hey, form and content are related. That's certainly true. So to start out, Dr. Borsman, I wanted to ask a little bit about the background of the book. Um, I took your class on Lexio Divina at Neshota a while ago now. And um, I know you've written on Christian exegesis before. You have scripture as real presence and five things theologians wish biblical scholars knew. What kind of got you interested in the topic of historical exegesis? Um, yeah, so the, the, the relationship between his, or you mean historical exegesis as in Lectio Divina, exegesis as it was done in the, in the history of Christian thought. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. I thought you meant like historical critical or <laughs> yeah so historical historical exegesis in the way that you, that you mean that here um uh has has been a long-standing interest of mine actually and i first got into it through henri de lubac um he has a little essay called i think it's called allegory and topology if i remember well it's a lovely little essay um and um i first read that uh, when i was part of a bible department and we were discussing questions of how to read scripture. Um, and, and we had some disagreements within the department between uh, Bible scholars and theologians on the issue. And so I started studying up on it and, and reading the Lubach, uh, not being very familiar with patristic exegesis or medieval exegesis at all. Um, and when, when I read the Lubach, it was a bit of an eye opener and, and I immediately sensed I've I've got to take this seriously. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to go with this, but it's something I can't just put aside. Um, here's a very thoughtful individual writing about this stuff, quoting quoting church fathers and medieval theologians who um, were at least as bright and probably brighter than I am. I, I, I've I've got to at least suspend judgment and 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 read them, try to understand on their own terms, see see what it is they were trying to do. And so from one thing came the next, and um, eventually I, I, I became persuaded that not only do they do, do these patristic and medieval um, scripture readers have something to say to us, but their so-called pre-critical exegesis is actually 
quite superior to our um, uh, general and more historical mode of, 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 of reading scripture. So that's, that's um, what got me into this about, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago now. Um, and um, I've, I've got into it more and more deeply. It has shaped my personal reading of scripture. It has shaped my preaching. Um, it has shaped not just my way of reading the Bible, it has shaped my overall understanding of, of metaphysics. Um, the two are I, think, are, I think, closely connected, uh, hermeneutics on the one hand, metaphysics on the other. And so my whole, my whole outlook on life really has been, been shaped by that initial reading of the Lubach. Uh, so, Dr. Borsma, um, just to kind of expand on that, uh, we have uh, expanded our audience, and it's a little different than it was before since we moved to YouTube. Uh, so they may not have heard you when you came on before. Um, but if you could give everyone sort of a, a definition of uh, Lectio Divina, I think that would help kind of set the stage. Yeah, uh, you're actually asking a really difficult question. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, in some sense, it's very easy. You know, Lexio Divina, divine reading, literally is what it means. Um, and um, it, it is often sort of classified as this, this specialized type of reading where you, where you read scripture devotionally and prayerfully uh, with the aim of contemplation. Um, what I try to do actually in the book is, is debunk the, the sort of specialized reading approach to Lexio Divina. And, and, and try to say, no, actually, um, Lecture Divina is, is what scripture reading is supposed to be like. It's a, it's a normative approach to reading scripture. It's not just a, a particular niche for monastic readers. It's, it's for all of us and, and, and for much of the time, really. Um, and, and the reason for that is that God himself is the aim of our reading of scripture. Um, and so when you meditate, when you, when you read and read Lexio, when you do meditation, meditatio, when you pray over the scriptures, oratio, when you finally end up with the fourth step of contemplation, contemplatio, um, that's, that's, for Christians at least, the aim of our Bible reading, period. Uh, that's the aim of our preaching, period. Um, seeing God is the aim, the beatific vision. And, and um, Lexio Divina, um, all, all lexio, all reading of scripture is supposed to be divina, it's supposed to be divine, that is to say, it's supposed to be holy, set apart, it's supposed to be special because this, these particular books, these divine scriptures are meant for, for an encounter with God. I really appreciated um, sort of early on in the book, you mentioned that, that lectio divina is, is sort of that natural Christian experience. It's the natural way of reading uh, right. the scriptures. That resonated with me because I think we, in a lot of cases, sort of uh, either through the academy or, or through outside influences have sort of accepted that there's sort of multiple ways to read the text. There's multiple ways to approach scripture. Um, so I really like that it's, it's sort of that natural Christian thing. Right. Yeah, I think it is. And I'm not, I'm not entirely discounting um, that, that one can read scripture for different purposes. You know, a, a, someone who's a strict historian or an archaeologist or, or, or um, 
even a biologist for that matter, may, may, may approach the scriptures and say, hey, there are cert there's cert certain data here, certain information here um, that, that, that's quite interesting. Uh, it tells me something perhaps about 7th century BC Assyria that I'm interested in. Nothing wrong with any of that. Um, I think there are subordinate aims, goals that are legitimate, also in the reading of, of, of scripture, I think. Um, but a Christian will always want to keep in mind that those are subordinate goals and that they aim at something higher and greater. Um, and so you don't want to isolate um, a, a, a uh, say, an archaeological or historical approach to scripture and say that that that's the end of our other the aim of our, of our bible reading um we can't have a purely historical approach in other words to the reading of, of the scriptures shorn of any sort of supernatural uh end that actually kind of brings us to the next question that we had which was at the heart of this idea is the uh, is is this emphasis on scripture as sacrament? And that's something that you discuss in this book and also uh, develop a bit in scripture's real presence. What does it mean when we say scripture is a sacrament? Um, in, in sacramental theology, um, people often distinguish between sacramentum and race, sacrament and reality or sacrament and truth. Um, and God, God in Christ is the reality for Christians, I think, at, at, at which, at whom we aim in all of our lives and in everything that we do. We have a desire, a longing for God, and and um, He is only in that reality do we find true satisfaction, true true fulfillment. And that's why the beatific vision, I think, is the end, the reality, the race um, of of the Christian life. Now, God. Um, brings us there by means of sacraments, by means of um, uh, words on the page, and 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 uh, as I say in, in the first chapter of the book, flesh on the cross. You can't bypass those sacramental uh, things of, of of time and space. Um, they are God's God-given means, gracious means, means of grace to bring us to Him. Um, so the scriptures, in in that sense, are a sacrament. They are are um, God accommodating Himself, God graciously condescending, as 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 Saint John Chrysostom might want to put it, graciously condescending to us, um, so as to lift us up to Him into His presence. Um, sacraments are, are are physical, tangible. Uh, means that God uses. So words are important, not to be bypassed, to be meditated on instead, to be to be memorized, to to be chewed upon, uh, to be savored, so as so as to draw us into God's presence. So I have a confession to make um, that I have two degrees in biblical studies. That's what I did before going to Neshota and went to Neshota kind of with the expectation that I would continue on in that. And then I took your class on Lexio Divina and uh, nothing's quite been the same. I mean, I really got to the point where I had trouble. Uh, I had trouble engaging with the scriptures devotionally because of the what I had been taught in, in terms of, of how to approach a text and how to engage with the text. Mm -hmm. um, 
one of the things you taught us in class, and I think comes out in this book, is that this isn't just a nice little exercise that we add to our devotional regimen. Um, this is a way, the way that the scriptures are supposed to be read. And I was wondering if you could just maybe drill down a little bit on the differences between this approach in Lexio and the way that someone like me might be trained to approach the text in a biblical studies program. Yeah, very happy to do that. Um, with one caveat, um, this book, Pierced by Love, is, is, is not a polemical book. Um, I, I, I do have some polemical writing uh, in, in certain places and at certain times, and I, I won't necessarily shy away from it. Um, but I purposely didn't write this book in a polemical fashion um, because I, I tried at least to write a book um, uh, for which the, the mode of writing, as it were, the, um, uh, is, is, is in sync with, with the contents of it. Um, so it's not a polemical book at all in that regard. Um, scripture's real presence is in some ways a bit polemical, I suppose, um, in that I very deliberately um, make arguments against um, a prioritizing or, or isolating of historical, uh, grammatical or historical critical exegesis as the be-all and end-all and, and argue fairly strongly against it. So I don't do that in this book. Um, that said, um, happy to answer the question. Um, yes, uh, this book assumes an underlying assumption that exegesis is not primarily a, a historical discipline. Um, it's not to say anything negative about history. I have a degree in history. I love history. Um, and, and historical exegesis also can contribute genuine insights, I think, particularly particularly grammatical historical exegesis, I think, can do that. Um, but there, there, are, there are certain limits to what you can do as a historian. For the first limit, at least two important limits. One is that um, history only gives you, by definition, only gives you um, probabilities. You're, you're looking back in time. You're trying to reconstruct something. Um, you may come close, and sometimes you get closer than at other times when you do historical investigation. Um, but but there's never an indubitable Cartesian certainty um, that you, that you can arrive at um, through through historical reconstruction. That's just not the nature of what his, what historiography does. And it's important to to keep in mind that limitation. For you cannot build your faith on historical reconstruction. If, if, if that were the case, you'd always be, well, you know, there's a certain possibility that this is actually true. And, and, and maybe it's quite likely, um, uh, but maybe it's not. And we could all disagree on it and have, have a nice, interesting academic debate about it, perhaps. Um, but you can't, the church cannot build her faith on, on that sort of historical reconstruction which is why the historical Jesus research is such a problem, no matter what, whether it's first, second, or third, you know, um, uh, uh, way of, 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 of historical Jesus research. Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's, it's, it's doomed from the outset because it, it, it cannot give us a certainty on which to build our faith. That's the one. And it usually, one, and it usually gives us a, a Jesus who looks very much like the people who are doing the reconstructing. Oh, right? Jesus becomes a white liberal 
college professor from the 70s. Yes, yes. There's typically, when you look at the, at, at the, um, at the various um, historical reconstructions, they're typically, you know, um, in, in line with who we ourselves uh, are as, as scholars um, and what kind of cultural assumptions we ourselves have and, and so on. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, so, so that's one caveat um, ab about the positive goods of history. And, and the other caveat um, is that um, uh, his, history is, is never purely history. So even though I would affirm, you know, uh, the qualified goods of, of, say, grammatical historical exegesis, um, um, we can't separate that historical or literal level of reading scripture from the other spiritual levels of scripture. And typically, you know, in the history of Christian thought, the other levels would be the, the allegorical, the moral or tropological, and then the, the, the anagogical or the eschatological. Um, you can't separate them. It's not just that there are more levels, three other levels, it's that you can't separate them. In other words, to, to arrive at some sort of historical um, historical meaning of the text, historical interpretation of the text, uh, you can't bracket off by means of methodological naturalism or something like that. You can't bracket off the other three levels. Now you go to the history in the first place because um, you believe that Jesus Christ is the contents of the scriptures, and because you believe um, that it is the triune God who has revealed himself in these scriptures, and so on, and many other, many other presuppositions that you bring to the text, theological in nature. So those are, those are, those are caveats to, yeah, to saying that, yes, history is part and parcel of finding meaning in and through the text. So, Dr. Borzma, you have a, a chapter, it's a chapter two, I think, um, called Acrophobia, um, yeah. or Fear of Heights. Um, and your contention is that modern Christians are sort of afraid of heights uh, in a spiritual sense. Um, and in the preceding chapter, you mentioned sort of Plato's imagery of Ascent and uh, St. Augustine's. So what are some of our hangups in, in regards to the ascent of the Christian life? Well, it, it, it's a great question. It ties in, I think, with the previous one, because we're very historical creatures. And so we, we construct things on a timeline, typically. Um, we, we, we undertake a journey from A to B uh, over time. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's, it's part and parcel of who we are as, as, as creatures in, in the time and space that God gives us. Uh, life is sacramental, and that means that space and time and our existence within them um, have to be taken seriously. Um, but we should remember St. Augustine's distinction between use and enjoyment, usus and, and, and fruitio. Um, things of this world that God gives to us as his good gifts on our journey are therefore our use to our ultimate supernatural end. Uh, so uti, to use, uh, that's what we do with, with things of this world. Um, they're, they're not there for their own sake. They're not ultimate good. But God is there for his own sake. 
And so he is there for our enjoyment, as St. Augustine would say, fruitio, enjoyment. And uh, everything else is used for the sake of God, to the end of seeing God. I think that's a fundamentally correct insight. And, and yet, I can't tell you how often um, when, when people bring an objection, say you mentioned Plato earlier, right in your question, when people talk about Christian Platonism, they think, oh, that's so otherworldly. And, and, and I immediately just want to respond, well, yes, it is. Um, because that's actually our aim, another world. Now, to be sure, that other world is the fulfillment of this, the, the transfigure, this world transfigured, you could even say. Um, but, but it is not this world as we have it here and now. Um, people are afraid of that quote-unquote otherworldliness. That's also why we are afraid of ladder imagery, of going up, of, of any sort of vertical metaphor. We're apprehensive of that. No matter that the scriptures are filled with, 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 with vertical metaphors, and which is why the tradition builds upon it. Um, and again, like, like, like Father Wesley was saying about, about how we reconstruct Jesus in our own image when we do historical Jesus research. Um, um, so, so too, I think, um, we, we, we reconstruct the scriptures generally uh, in line with our cultural, um, cultural likes and dislikes. We, we are at home in our world, especially in our materialistic Western society. We, we cannot stand the thought of having to give up anything. Um, and yet it's only by giving up, by sacrificing, um, that we gain everything. Um, it is only by that means that we gain everything. Um, so it's a really important topic to me, the, the notion of acrophobia, fear of heights, is, is a really important, I think, important one, I think, um, because God descended for our sakes in order to take us up to himself, to divinize us. And, and that's not going to happen, you know, unless, unless we are willing uh, to, 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 to humble ourselves, to deny ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves. Um, so, so the exaltation that is the end of the Christian life and that we witness in, in our Savior Jesus Christ, uh, the exaltation um, is of the very heart, essence of, of, of the faith. No, I think that's, I think that's really, I really enjoyed reading that chapter. I, I, it, it sort of spurred me into thinking about right. it in, in that term or in those terms. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that kind of leads us to another question and, and that's about um, acedia and, and that, how that can disrupt our lives. Uh, yeah. So, so what is that and how, do, how do you see it uh, disrupting uh, our, maybe our ascent or an attempt at uh, ascending? Yeah, um, acedia is 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 a, is a one of one of the key sins that the church fathers talk about, and one of the key vices. Um, it can be translated in different ways. Mo most often, probably, it's translated as sloth, and and certainly sloth is an element of of, of acedia. Um, perhaps the best way to approach the topic is by saying, well, there are two elements to it. The one is. A, a, a sadness with respect to the past, um, 
tristizia, uh, sadness with regard to the past. So you, 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 you look at the past and you're disappointed in yourself, and there's, there's, no, it, it doesn't give you, give you, give you any satisfaction, or very little satisfaction. And the other is, is the forward-looking element, the future-looking element. Um, hope is, hope disappears. Um, so there's, you're, you're, you're not, you're not in any shape to take on anything. Uh, there's a fatigue element, boredom, tedium in, in Latin. So tristitia, sadness, tedium, bored, boredness. Um, on the other hand, you're bored with life, as it were. You, you don't see the meaning of it. Um, or if intellectually, perhaps you're convinced of some of it, it doesn't translate in, 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 in actually a spirit of, of, of hope that looks to the future and, and says, yes, I can trust a good, a good future. God has been with me in the past and he's going to care for me in the future. Um, and so there's a disorientation and often, often a sense of wanting, wanting to escape out, out of this maelstrom of life. Um, and of course, the, the most severe form um, uh, is, is, is suicide. I mean, I don't talk about that in, in my book, but that would be the most serious, the most severe consequence of, of the, of the um, acidia that you're asking about. Um, and so in, in, the monas in monastic writings, you often have, as a result, warnings to stay put. Stabilitas is a huge theme, right? So, so stability, stay put, don't, don't get out of your cell. I know you're tempted to, to, to leave, don't leave, Just stick, stick with it. Um, <clears throat> because you think things are gonna be better perhaps elsewhere, so you find hope again. Actually, you're just running away from things and, 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 and you'll, you'll be caught up in the same, same cyclic, um, cyclic uh, sense of, 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 of how things are moving that, that have, haven't trapped you until now. Um, so yeah, that's more or less the, the, um, the, the theme and I kind of in the book, in the chapter, elaborate on that, on that in various ways. But. One thing that stuck out to me um, in, in reading this and having gone through a lot of this material with you previously, um, is the significance of memory um, yeah. kind of a, as a as one way to guard against um, acedia, certainly, but also um, against just kind of chaos and disorganization in general. And I also have to tell you a funny story about this because I don't really believe there are accidents. Um, so I was reading uh, this book at the same time that I've been rereading uh, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Oh, and yeah. I read the story of him going to the baseball game with his grandpa like in the morning and then in the afternoon I was reading your book and read the chapter where you had a meditation on that particular story and thought that is yeah. so cool. Um, yeah, yeah. With, the, with the Acedia theme. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I, I was raised evangelical and part of that upbringing was, um, was doing a program called Awana where we memorized scripture um, and you would get cool. little jewels in your crown, literal little crown and you get jewels in them um, for the more verses that you memorized. And um, since becoming Anglican, I've noticed that at least setting aside time to do scripture memory is not something that we emphasize a lot. I mean, I think we pick up 
an internalized scripture because it's such a part of our liturgy, but we don't mm-hmm. say like, mm-hmm. hey, set this time aside and memorize these verses or anything like that. Yeah. I've, I've not seen that in any of the churches I've been in anyways. Um, but why is it important to memorize? How does how does memorizing make us better readers of scripture? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, and I love the practice that you did with Awani. Um, you know, that's something evangelicals definitely, definitely do right, memorizing scripture. Uh, even though uh, the culture as a whole um, tends to think that, that uh, memorizing uh, is something we no longer need now that we have computers and everything is in our laptops anyway. Um, but um, uh, I, I think uh, scriptural uh, memorizing, memorizing Bible text, memorizing all the Psalms um, is hugely important. Uh, it's something that characterized the Christian tradition throughout. Uh, they went about it very deliberately, very methodically. Um, and as you're saying, within the Anglican tradition, um, you find that mostly in the repetitive chanting of, of, of the Psalms, which is, of course, back to monastic practice, obviously. Um, so, yeah, uh, hugely important. And, and the, re- the question as to why, what's the significance of it? Why would you embark on this? Um, it's, it's really, in, in the end, quite simple. Only something that's in your head can shape who you are. Um, it, it's as simple as that. Uh, if something is not part of who you are, uh, if it's not in your, in your mind, if it hasn't entered in and has not fucked somehow with you, it won't be able to shape you. Um, of course, we're shaped in all sorts of ways. We get bombarded in our culture with information. Much of it sort of comes in and immediately goes out again. Um, but but things stick, whether we like it or not. We do have a memory. So things stick, which means in practice, I think, that that um, the things with which, you know, our, our, our secular um, propaganda bombards us deliberately, um, whether it be images or words, and mostly it's images these days, um they shape us most which is why i think we need to be really cautious with images that we allow uh to allow to 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 infiltrate our minds um precisely because images are so important i mean i have a lot of images in the book a lot of pictures in the book um and um i i talk in some places about how how some of these 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 monastic writers used these images very deliberately. They were aware of their power, and they were aware of how they facilitated memory. The notion of memory palaces, which we often talk about still, I think, in our culture, you know, where we locate certain things in certain spots, um, they played a big role um, in first of all in the ancient world, but then also later on in the, in the medieval world, very and very deliberately. They said about memorizing things because because these words, these images, um, shape who you become as a person. So if you if you memorize Bible verses, it'll shape you into a certain person. So I use the example in the book um, of of, Lo- of the Logos program. Um, many of your of, of your listeners will know that the Logos program is the biggest you know, Bible, Bible, computer Bible program in the world. Um, I, I have it on my laptop. Um, in many ways, it's very, very, very helpful. 
Um, but but what's in that program? What is is what's on my computer only, and it's not in my head. Um, some of it can enter into my head by me using that program, um, but only if I actually make sure that it does that it's in my head. Will it also shape me as a person? Just because I have a have a a logos program on my on my laptop doesn't make me a more spiritual person. Doesn't bring me closer to God. Um, it doesn't doesn't change my personality in any way, shape, or form. So so memorizing only memorizing only does that. I think it's helpful to juxtapose that against some of the sort of productive productivity culture that you see in in the states. I mean, obviously that's one example in terms of of Bible study, but this idea of sort of building a second brain and you just sort of throw everything into a program, right. computer program to organize your notes, which makes you feel good in terms of having everything in an orderly system, but it's very easy to just plug things in and, and it has virtually no effect on you as a person. Right, right. And, and although I don't make the point in the book, I think you can even go a step further. And although I wouldn't quite want to do without my Logos program because I'm too addicted to it, um, the truth is, that there is actually something nefarious about all this computer stuff that we're using um, as a substitute for memorization. Because as soon as they say substitute, um, it means that we're not using the time that, that the time that we're spending on our computers. We're not using it uh, to go um, to, to memorize the scriptures in, in, a, in a different mode. And because we have so much at our fingertips on our computer programs. Um, we're actually being distracted. Um, there's tons of stuff here on, on my on my program, right? If you do a little search, I all of a sudden get these 139 results and they're on my screen and I, I, I read through them all and then I do another search, get something else. I'm, I'm, go, I'm, I'm going back and forth all over the place in very short period of time in order to create a certain picture for myself of what this text might mean. And, um, Part of what's going on, at least, is, is sheer distraction. And it's not all distraction, to be sure, but a lot of what goes on in that process is, is distracting me. And, and what, what Lexi Divina does, what I think proper, proper Bible reading does, is it fights against distraction and it, it wants to capture my attention and keep my attention. Those two terms, distraction and attention, are huge within within the monastic tradition in fact prior, they're, they're huge they're huge throughout the christian tradition and and the reason for that is that our ultimate ultimately our attention is on god and god alone um contemplation the fourth fourth step of lecture divina and and for that for that attention to be truly focused on god um, there are other things that we need to let go of again, right? There's certain self-abnegation. Um, there, there's an abnegation also of, of, of things of this world, including, therefore, thoughts about all sorts of things that may or may not be beneficial as such. Who knows? Often they're not very beneficial at all, but, but that get in the way of proper attention.
I think that's that's sort of interesting. I was just sort of struck um, by by something uh, you you mentioned earlier, and we've uh, you know uh, Wes and I have talked about this before. Um, the idea of sort of like chewing on scripture, um, and I was thinking about something like logos or the way that we approach scripture now. It's almost like we have an eating disorder. Uh, it's it's that's like good, yeah. we're not actually. Like we're not memorizing, right? We're not approaching it in that sort of meditative way and letting it form the furniture of our minds and sort of sitting there and being in us and then forming us. Uh, we're sort of offloading it almost. We're like, you know, being bulimic about it. We ingest it and then we throw it off somewhere else. Um, and that, I think, yeah. it also ties in with sort of acedia in some ways too because that's a sort of apathetic way to approach what should be nourishing us should be nutrition, but it's not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bulimic, bulimia. You're quite right. Um, we, we, we gorge on, on, on things and we forget, we forget the purpose of, of, of this food. We forget that it's spiritual food. And the angel God himself. Um, yeah. You cannot digest when you have it. When you, when you receive it that way absolutely yeah and there there's a link i think between the between, between the, the physical disorders from which we suffer you know our mental disorders from which we suffer and and the spiritual disorders that that we that we um that we encounter um today so culturally you know the the the, the um the disorders, sicknesses that we have, and and the way that we treat the scriptures, um, and the spiritual practices that we do or do not have, um, I think they're closely linked. Now, as as you rightly point out, point out, they mirror each other. In terms of um of the eating imagery, which is so prevalent um for the for the medievals, um. One image that that stuck out to me, I think, in taking your class and then ever since, really, is Bernard, where he kind of it, it's like the this eating imagery points to forward or culminates in this in this thing he has called the belch of the heart, um, which to some listeners might sound really weird and and maybe even a little revolting. But what is I, I think it's quite beautiful. What what is it? What does Bernard mean when he talks about that? Yeah. Um... <laughs> so, so there's a whole bunch of things that come to mind immediately, right? Um, I mean, yeah, belching is is, is 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 you know in public is a crude thing to do. Um, if you're sitting with somebody that that you know well, they might say, "Why don't you go to the washroom and do that instead?" Um, and rightly so, I would think. Um, but um, um, the, the first thing to point to perhaps is Psalm 45. Um, my, my heart my heart uttereth a a a um I forget exactly the the, the object of the verb uh, but a, a good thing I think it's a, it says something like that my heart uttereth a good thing eruptavit or has uttered a good thing um and eruptare to utter also means to belch it's 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 a word with two meanings. So 
So I'm, I'm belching forth a goodly theme, I think this one translation, a goodly theme. Uh, and so um, why, why belching forth? Um, because for, and, and before I go on, Psalm 45, um, not all of our, our listeners may, may immediately um, identify it here. But Psalm 45 is a love song uh, between bride and groom. It's very much like a song of songs, uh, the king and, and, and his bride. Um, so it's a, it's a love song about the relationship between God and his people. Um, and and that's, that's the goodly theme um, of, of, of the psalm. Um, on which on which the the um, poet meditates, and um, the the notion here is is of, of belching, is uh, also connected to the scriptures in connection with with the relationship between clean and un, unclean animals. So in in Levitical law, um, a clean animal uh, is one that has split hooves. And that also also um, ruminates on its own food. Um, in other words, that belches up it, its food and 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 then ruminates on it. Now we have the verb ruminate still today. On we're ruminating on a certain theme or on a certain topic. We're thinking it over. We're meditating upon. It. So we're going over it again. So we're belching up our food more than a belch. Actually, we're bringing up our food again. Uh, like a clean animal, only clean animals do this. And so when we meditate, we become pure in heart. We become clean. It's, it seems like a dirty thing, but actually it, it's, it's, it has to do with purity. Um, because it's, it's, it's cows, for example, that ruminate um, and that have clean hooves, that have split hooves. Um, so, so, um, this this chewing of the cud, this ruminating upon upon the theme yet again, um, is is a metaphor has become a metaphor in Christian tradition, especially um, for for us going over the same text yet again, not because we 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 have some preference for boredom. But the very opposite, because we see greater and greater depths in doing this yet again. Um, so, of course, it's a metaphor. So we, we and, and yes, there's something, quote unquote, crude about the metaphor, no doubt, no doubt. Um, but when you're into, into spiritual, when, when you understand the scripture is meant to be read spiritually, then you realize that that. Um, the biblical author did not did not just write about animals and about about um, people's uh, people's um, permission or non-permission uh, to eat certain foods, um, but but intended by divine providence also to tell us something about what purity is about and how who it is that are pure. And, and, and how it is that we become pure. Um, so yeah, eating, you're right, huge, huge theme, uh, huge theme in, in connection with, with Lexia Divina and not only the belching part, which is only, well, not quite, but it's one of the last stages 
Um, but but there's lots of things in the whole eating eating um, thematic that captured um, the medieval attention. Uh, Dr. Borzma, could you take us through what compunction is and what role it plays in the spiritual life? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you're asking that question because I think it's a really important one. Um, compunction comes from uh, the two Latin words cum and pungere. Uh, so pungere is to pierce. So that's the title of the book that so comes from the title of the book is taken from this theme of compunction. Um, we're being pierced and God pierces us with his arrows. Um, the arrows of love to be sure. Um, but God pierces us with them and it's painful. Um, the encounter with the scriptures is often, not universally, not always, but it's often a painful one. And, and, and at least there's a variety of reasons for that. And, and um, the writers that I look at in this book um, give us a variety of reasons for as to uh, the, the reason for, for the pain that we experience in reading scripture. Um, but one key reason, at least, on which they dwell again and again is a sinfulness. Um, you know, sometimes we, we, we seem to think that you have to be a high Calvinist or something in order to, to talk about sin. Uh, nothing against high Calvinists, except I'm not. But, but they're right, of course, that we need to talk about sin and not just talk about sin, but experience the horror of it. Um, Sin is a reality in our lives. And, and many of these authors, none of them probably was, was, was a true Calvinist in, in his persuasion, but all of them talk about, about sin and about the grief over sin, the tears that come up uh, when we think about our sin, uh, or that should come up at least when, when we think about our sin. So we're peers. Um, by being confronted with the text. So what meditation does, reading and meditation, what, what, what they do is they, they force an encounter. When you, when you read the text slowly, and you read it again and again and again, you cannot but begin to think about your own life. You cannot but begin to, to think about um, your own context uh, as broadly conceived as necessary, but certainly also your own internal spiritual life with God. That's a key component, I think. And, and, and it's in that encounter um, that prayer occurs, begins to occur, because now I need to talk to God because things are a mess. We, we often... We often go past our messes, especially as, as, as North Americans. We, we ignore our messes because we just, you know, we're too garrulous. We, we just chatter. We're chatterboxes. We just go on and on. We don't sit still. Um, and, and, and that's how we often avoid the pain, I think. The punjure, the piercing. Um, and what what... This writing does what Saint Anselm, for example, in his um, prayers and meditations, amazing, amazing book. Uh, what what he does is is um, he, he he stares his own sins and his sinfulness in the face, 
and is horrified and expresses his horror at what he what he what he note, notes there um and 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 doesn't quite know often what to not quite know that's an understatement but doesn't quite know what to do with them um you know um uh Eileen Sweeney says says Anselm feels like he's in a double bind. He, if if he if he doesn't talk about his sins, if he doesn't confess them in the light of his meditation, then then he can't find forgiveness. And and on the other hand, if if, if he opens up about them, I mean, even God may not want to hear about them, and none of the saints to whom he prays may want to hear about them. Um, and, and, and so he's stuck. And he expresses that, that sense of being stuck, the double bind that I think Sweeney talks about. Um, it's not just it's not just Saint Anselm, although Saint Anselm does it in a very poignant form, but but it's there all through the tradition. You know, ever since E. P. Sanders in the seventies or whatever it was, yeah, I think it was seventies, eighties. Ever since E. P. Sanders, the New Testament theologian, we, we've been we've been talking down the introspective conscience of the West, you know, as, as if it's, that's just a, a black sheep for us. It's, it's something to avoid. Um, truth is, A, there's no such thing as an introspective conscience of just the West, because the East has always been equally introspective. Um, you know, the, the notion of catanuxus, you talk about compunction, is a translation, which is a Latin term, of course, but Latinized term, but in, in Greek, it's katanuxis, and 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 it's there in John Climacus. It's 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 there in, in Origen. It's there in, in in the Eastern Fathers just as much as in the West. In other words, it's the entire Christian tradition. So, if we want to get rid of the introspective conscience, we have to get rid of the Christian tradition and replace it with something else, some some this worldly Christianity um, that 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 you know ignores at least personal sin, not social sin, perhaps, because we like to talk about social sin. But we, we, we want to, we need to avoid in that case all, 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 um, all personal sins. Um, but it, it's by introspection. It's through introspection that we recognize our own divinity. Um, our own sins, but also through dealing with sin, our own divinity, that we recover our, 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 our true selves in Christ. So without introspection, you never get that. Part of, um, part of compunction is tears, right? The mm -hmm. significant, um, significant part of that process. And you have a section in the book that I thought was really helpful because I've heard this talked about a lot and it's very rare, at least in my own personal sort of meditation that, that those tears ever actually come. Um, so what do we do when, when the tears don't come or, and, and this isn't one you talk about so much, but I'd be interested to hear um, if the tears come, but maybe they don't model the, or, 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 or reflect the internal state. Um, so like, I'm thinking of like an actor, my brother-in-law's an actor who can cry on cue, you know? Um, so what, what happens when, when the tears don't come or when they do come, but maybe it doesn't match the internal. Yeah. Um, 
that's a really difficult question and one that uh, monastic authors struggled with a lot and 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 when i say struggled with a lot i mean i mean it in that sense so they didn't give a clear answer to the puzzle as it were um it was a struggle for them um when you say you know in my own life i don't necessarily experience this or at least not 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 as often as, as probably i should um I, i'm i'm you know when you think of the pharisee and the publican i'm often more like the pharisee perhaps than, than like the publican and um, that's certainly my experience as well and it was bonaventure's experience um it was anselm's experience um so it's not something new and that's a, fir a first thing perhaps to recall when you when you have these difficulties you're not alone and uh, and not only in a contemporary sense but you're also not alone in christian tradition um, um so so it's it's a it's a common common lament um that's one one thing to say another thing to 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 keep in mind in, in responding to the question i think it's climacus if, if i remember well uh, who, who makes the comment that we should keep in mind um different characters the different differences in character um not everyone expresses himself in the same way as the next person um you know, I, I, I'm Dutch, and Dutch people are fairly stoic people. I'm not stoic, actually. I think I'm, I'm a pretty emotional person, but most, mostly Dutch people are pretty stoic. Um, and and that doesn't mean, and and you know, the Calvinists, their form probably has shaped the spirituality and the way that they express themselves and so on. Um, I grew up in a in a, in a, in a I would say strict Calvinist tradition, and and sometimes you know people talk well they're, they're the frozen chosen uh, that's how they think of themselves um actually no uh, there's a deep spirituality there um and there's an emotional element there an experiential element that's huge uh, in fact there's a mystical element in this experiential reform tradition um, that doesn't express itself necessarily um, um, in the way that North Americans might typically, or like perhaps Italians might might express themselves much more emotionally and much more elaborately. Um, but in other words, what I'm trying to, to I'm trying to paint a picture here of of how different cultures, different individuals um, have a different way of different ways of expressing themselves, and that's okay. And Climacus makes that point. That's okay. That helps us, I think, in not needlessly beating ourselves up. And sometimes we do need to beat ourselves up, figuratively speaking, I think, well, maybe literally too, but certainly figuratively speaking. Maybe we need to, um, but, but that's not always the case. Um, someone can truly be sorry for sin and have dry eyes. That's not to deny the link again between tears and, and compunction. But but you know there there are other um, there, there are other modes of expressing oneself. Um, and and the final comment I want to make about this is um, we shouldn't use the lack of tears 
as an excuse. Um, when we don't engage in the type of scripture reading that I'm trying to advocate in this book, um, when we don't put ourselves in, in the means of grace, as it were, when, when perhaps we don't even go to get ourselves out of bed on Sunday morning to go to church, we shouldn't be surprised that there's no compunction because we're not being confronted with the heart of the gospel, with God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Um, and in that case, compunction is, is, is not very likely, not very likely to occur. So, so um, I, I suspect that generally our, our spiritual reading of scripture is lacking in comparison to previous generations, certainly North America. And, and we should be cautious not to, not to say, oh, it's okay that I don't have the tears. Well, are you sure it's okay? One of the uh, one of the parts I really appreciated about this chapter on contemplation and compunction is the way that you discuss the active life and the contemplative life. And in fact, I remember this came up, I think, in the in the course on on theologians and biblical scholars. Um, oftentimes we view these things as opposed. Right. You're either Mary or you're Martha. You're either Leah or you're Rachel. You know, you have to be one or the other. Um yeah. But I think you offered a really helpful way kind of out of that strictly dichotomous mode of th thinking. I, I know you, you kind of draw from Aquinas here a little bit. How does he and some of the other fathers help us see the connection between action and contemplation? Yeah. In the chapter that you're mentioning, um, I, I look at various theologians in the, in the Western tradition, especially uh, in the Augustinian tradition. So I look at Augustine himself. Um, at, at St. Eelred, um, at, at Thomas Aquinas, Gregory, Gregory the Great, I look at. Um, and, and they all express themselves more or less with, with a minor, minor quibble perhaps about Thomas Aquinas, but, but they all more or less do this in, in the quote unquote same, same way. Um, Leah and Rachel are, are, are both the, the, the active and, and the contemplative life um, are, are both to be pursued. Um, they both have their place for Christians. The Christian life is by definition a mixed life. Um, now, that's not to say that, that these theologians value the two in, in exactly the same way, and that it's, as it were, indifferent which one you pursue at any given time, because they're both good after all uh, anyway. No. Um, every one of these theologians lament um, the, 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 um, the time, ha having to spend so much time in the active life and having so little uh, opportunity um, for, for, the contempl for contemplation. Um, and, and the reason for that lament um, is, I think, that contemplation is the ultimate aim for every one of them, the ultimate aim of the Christian life. Um, so although both are good, uh, both are gifts of God, it's, it's kind of like the distinction between uh, use and enjoyment that I talked about earlier, where, where the active life is, is use, uh, is the equivalent of use, and where the contemplative life is the equivalent of, of enjoyment of fruitio. 
Um, and and one one reason, apart from the fact that this this is a theme that obviously links up with Lexi Regina, um, but 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 one other reason why I'm why I'm, why I gave a separate chap chapter to this particular theme is that I I think we've we've um, disturb the balance between the two in contemporary culture. Also as Christians we have. Um, and, 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 and that's a polite way of saying it. Um, because really what we're after mostly, perhaps solely often, is the act of life. Um, and, and with that, I, I, I mean mostly, of course, the kind of day-to-day -day activities that we, that we embark upon. But it also, for, the, for this monastic tradition, includes preaching and teaching that also is part of part of the active life or or or, or the, the the ruling function of a bishop or of a pope you know all of that is activity and and it seems to me that we have so overvalued action in relation to contemplation in, in contemporary christianity um that we've even begun to model the afterlife on a life of action the afterlife is just going to be for many of us i'm afraid it's going to be more of the same um in other words i will still be sipping my heineken beer on my porch in the hereafter um and 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 i'm still going to you know compose the next piece of music or write the next book or whatever it is in the afterlife. And on that, I just want to say, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We will be rejoicing in God himself. Um, and we won't have time to write books, nor will it be any use. Augustine, Augustine, not just Augustine, but also the other theologians who, who stand in his wake, makes the point that the reason why we are engaged in action is I see so many poor people around me. There are so many people that need my help one way or another. Um, there's so many needs in this world that needs to need to be met. Um, and that's why I, I can't just, you know, um, quote unquote, sit around and contemplate. Um, there's there's people that, there are people that need me. Um, and, and, and so those needs call me to action. There's no such needs in the hereafter, according to Augustine. So nothing wrong with action, right? No, you better help out your poor neighbor, or you better, you know, if you if you see a particular need, jump into action. Of course you do, and you should. Um, woe is you if you don't, says Augustine. Um, it's just that there's something greater. Um, and the greater thing is when those needs will finally be gone, thanks be to God. I think that's I think that's that's really good, and it, and it sort of ties into um, we had a listener question uh, from from Father Mac, and he says he's interested in what Doctor Borsma has to say about reading and preaching the scriptures in the liturgy, specifically if there are ways to tie the liturgy to lectio divina. 
Man, great question. I didn't know you guys were this technologically advanced. I'll take questions from the audience during the podcast. That's really quite something. Um, so, yeah, Father Mac's question is an interesting one. Um, two comments about that. One is uh, you don't mess with the liturgy. Uh, so, so you don't mess it even for the sake of, of, of Lectio Divina. I'm not sure what that might look like. Um, but, but if that was meant with the question, I would, uh, or that is part of the question, perhaps, I'm not sure, but I would say no to that. Uh, the liturgy is not something that's constructed uh, on a moment to moment basis. It's something that the tradition hands to us. It's sacred and, and, and it is, it is what it is. Um, now there is a close link. I, I do believe, um, between um, preaching and Lectio Divina in particular. Um, preaching, I think, is the fruit of the preacher's Lectio Divina. Um, is the outcome. So um, one, one of the things that Augustine, and especially also later on Aquinas, talks about is, yeah, you have you you have you have action first. They have contemplation, but then you 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 have again action based upon your contemplation. It's a cyclical thing, in other words. Um, if you have contemplated sacred things, you'd be selfish not to share them, and and and. and you cannot hoard them. That's not what they're for. They're meant to be shared. Um, um, and, and so the Dominican adage is um, contemplata, contemplated things. Um, you, you are to hand them on to others. Ali istradra, to hand them on to others. That's what you do in, in, in preaching. Um, a sermon is not a, a systematic theology lecture. Um, a sermon is is also not, and unfortunately that happens more often, than, I think, than a systematic theology lecture. It's also not a, a bunch of stories strung together uh, with some spiritual nuggets of wisdom. No, they're, they're the fruit of contemplation upon the biblical text. Um, so, so as a preacher, you have sat through the week with a particular passage, and that passage is central. It's not just a takeoff point, jump off point. No, you, you've sat with that passage. You've read it again and again. You meditated on it. You've prayed over it. Um, you've, you've reflected upon your own life in, in, in the light of that biblical passage. So you've been confronted with the biblical text itself already. You've been pierced with that. No need for application, right? Application is just nonsense. Um, but you've, you've been pierced by the biblical text. The, and, and that's how meaning occurred. Application is not some later stage. No, it's after meaning. So you first have the meaning and then you have the application. No, it's, it's in the encounter between the two horizons of the text and of the reader or the preacher that meaning occurred and what you do in the sermon 
is you share that quote unquote product of that to the best of your abilities. Um, in that sense, Lecture Divina is central, I think, to the liturgy. Um, there's one other thing actually comes to mind as I'm thinking about this. It's a great question. Uh, one other thing that comes to mind, and that is a mystagogical, a mystagogical um, uh, catechesis. Um, the liturgy is, is, is the subject matter, as it were, of the catechesis. So you, when you teach people the content of the Christian faith, when you catechize them, um, what, you, what you typically do, at least what, what, what um, mystagogical um, theologians did in, in, in earlier centuries, especially the fourth and fifth, is they would, they would reflect upon the liturgy. They would talk about what it is that you did in the liturgy. What did we just go through when we put our white garments on? Well, we dressed ourselves in Jesus Christ and, and so on and so forth. So the entire liturgy teaches us the content of the Christian faith. That's also why I said earlier, you can't mess. It's one reason, probably the most important reason why you can't mess with the liturgy and make up your own. The, the liturgy gives us, the, gives us the truth of the faith and, and catechesis, at least in part, I think, reflects on the liturgy. What are we doing? together um, how are we made into the body of christ together in this in and through this liturgy how does that work what what specifics what specific steps um, um, and and as the preacher whether it's ambrose or cyril of jerusalem or whoever gives this catechesis uh, maximus confessor whoever gives this catechesis is going through the liturgy and is explaining the truth of the Christian faith by means of the liturgy. In that sense, um, um, the meditation, um, uh, the, the, the meditation of the, of the theologian um, um, results from from the um, from the liturgy, so that the liturgy sort of becomes like a Bible to us, you could perhaps say. Sort of becomes like a Bible to us upon which we do Lexio Divina. Um, Anselm in his, in his uh, prayers and meditations, uh, not just Anselm, others too, they, they present, like you, you think of, of, for example, the Proslogium, right? We, we know that book as, as this difficult proof for the existence of God, ontological argument for the existence of God, and we tend to think it's kind of scholastic and difficult. And in some sense it is, in fairness, but it's it's in the form of a prayer. And and it, it's really a piece of meditation in which Anselm seeks the face of God, Psalm 27. And and um, as he's seeking the face of God in this meditation. He purposely puts it in this in the form of oratio prayer, because he wants to assist his readers in in finding God. Um, and and 
So he presents his own text, as it were, as a, as a Bible. And he says to the reader, why don't, you, why don't you use my text just like you use the Bible itself, and just like you use perhaps the liturgy um, to meditate upon it and to think about the words. He says at one point in the introduction to present meditations, when he when he when he writes to to the other seas, he says, read it slowly. He says, read it again and again. You don't have to read the whole thing. Just read a small part. Just just think on it for a while. I mean, well, that's Lexi Divina, right? And, and he's so so yeah, the, the same and, and 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 more so, I would think, with the liturgy. Great question. I have a uh, I have a gripe with the 1928 American Prayer Book, which is what we use in our jurisdiction um, in the daily office. They take out at the beginning Psalm 69, 10, oh God, make speed to save us, O Lord, make haste to help us, which in Cassian in conferences, one of the monks says, this is the most sublime passage for you to meditate on all the time in terms of ascending the ladder. And I always hate that. Fortunately, we have supplements like the Anglican office book that will add that back in. But man, it always makes me so sad when we take it out. Yes, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, for historical and traditional reasons, I, I would certainly agree. Um, um, at the same time, of course, I mean, because of the long history that Cassian's comment on Psalm 69 has had, um, um, that particular verse has, has come to resonate um, strongly for us. But it can be done with any, any verse. Right, the memorization in general is important. It can be done with the Jesus prayer and you know all sorts of ways. So I I I think it's pretty obvious, but you know, the experience of writing this particular book, um, I'm curious is it, if you've experienced any sort of personal growth um, or you know a unique. Kind of insight into the application of Lectio Divina, um, just from your time spent researching, writing, studying, practicing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. A couple of comments on that. One is for me, theology and spirituality are one and the same thing, but they're not not even connected for me. I, I think, at least intellectually, I'm convinced that they are one and the same thing. I believe that. Um, so I do not even want to distinguish them, never mind separate, separating them. Um, that's not to say that I don't separate them at times. I do sadly separate them in my own life, I do. Um, and, you know, when we talked earlier about the lack of tears, for example, I mean, that echoes with me. And that's a problem in me, I'm quite sure. And, and it's not just to be explained by my character. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's there's um there's uh, i'm obviously uh, have been affected um by by going through this uh, lecture divina in in this sort of um very direct and intense encounter with with other theologians who themselves reflected upon the nature of 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 biblical interpretation by means of of lecture divina i've been been affected by it um, I've, I've also been affected, and perhaps more so in some ways, by 
by the practice of Lexi Divina, um, especially in group settings, actually, um, which I which I particularly love uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, holds your attention better. Um, it gives you the insights of other people in in, in the group. Um, um, so it, it, it counters distraction. So I I have been shaped, I think, by by that by by um, Lexi Divina in that sense. Um, without saying too much on a, on a public medium uh, like YouTube, um, um, the last year hasn't necessarily been an easy year for me personally, which means I, I, I suspect if if I were looking for you know. <laughs> Has has Lexi Divina been been just this wonderful, wonderful thing that that has brought me to great spiritual heights? Um, I, I would sadly have to acknowledge that that is not the case, um, for all sorts of all sorts of personal reasons. Um, um, but then again, I I actually don't think, like I, I or at least I try to resist. I do think of it in that way sometimes, but I try to resist measuring progress for myself by means of, of, of whatever spiritual disciplines I have. Um, you know, the, 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 the wisest spiritual guides usually acknowledge that, that demonic powers assail you in a variety of ways, internally and externally, um, more when you, when, when, you, when, when, when you draw closer to God. I think that's true. Um, I think that's very true. Um, and um, I think what we're called upon is to be faithful, keep at it, Trust the Spirit to do His work in transfiguring us. Um, I think I have been and am being transfigured. I believe that. I trust that. Um, um, sometimes you think you encounter certain progress in your own life in certain ways, certain, certain sins that disappear, or at least for a while disappear. Um, um, yeah, but I think that the, the faithfulness and, and sticking with it is, is the important part. I'm sorry if that doesn't sound upbeat enough for you. Uh, no, I think it's really good to hear that because, you know, I mean, this is such a well-written book and it's it's full of such deep insights. And I think um super valuable but also helpful to hear that even someone who can write a book like this needs to learn certain lessons like that i i think is is a really good thing for people to hear so we really appreciate it and we really appreciate you coming on and spending time to uh to talk with us about it today uh, it's uh yeah it's really an excellent book pierced by love divine reading with the christian tradition um to end our uh our show we always do a segment called what we're into um, everybody's favorite, you know, it can be, it can be anything you're, you've been doing lately, a book, a movie, uh, an experience. So Dr. Borsman, what are you, uh, what are you into? I, I rarely watch a movie. 
I, I don't think I could I could share with you my latest movie because it's probably been too long uh, for me to recall. Um, there's a great book I'm just reading here that I might as well just show you um, since you know we're on screen these days. Um, this book by um, Timothy Patitzas um, is called The Ethics of Beauty. He's an Orthodox theologian. It's a great book. It has one big drawback. It's 750 pages or so. <laughs> um, the title is a, is a bit a bit deceiving. I mean, he's an ethicist, an Orthodox ethicist, moral theologian. Um, um, and, and so he does talk about ethics, but he really talks about obstacles to, obstacles to the spiritual life, um, in, in particular with PTSD and, and how, 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 um, how therapy deals with it in one way and how he believes the Christian faith should deal with that. Hmm. Um, fascinating book, I think. Um, I haven't finished it yet. I don't know if I will finish it, seeing its length. <laughs> But it's a, it's a great read. I actually Rob Dreher put me onto this. He was talking about it in his blog some at some point, and so I picked it up, and uh, I wasn't disappointed. Actually, it's written in the form of an interview, so it's quite accessible, quite readable, um, and uh, very insightful. I think in the true in a true Orthodox tradition, um, not not does not intend to be a straight up scholarly book. Um, instead, it, it intends to be a, a spiritual guide, and I think it truly is. Well, that's a tough one to follow, Father Creighton. What are you into? Oh, you both get a get a shot at me. This is terrible. Uh, yeah, how do I follow that up? Hmm. Mine's going to sound a little bit less uh, thoughtful than that, I guess. Um, it may not, though. Bear with me. Uh, I'm into being outside. Um, I enjoy spending time outdoors. I find I actually get the most work done outdoors. Um, so if I'm if I'm outside, I feel like my I can write easier, more quickly. I feel more at peace, uh, reading, sure. writing, studying, that sort of thing. Um, and the weather's been very pleasant, surprisingly. Usually this time of year, it's already gone into unbearable temperatures in uh in atlanta so uh the fact that it's stayed somewhat springtime with a nice breeze and everything i've been trying to spend as much time outside as i can and uh which has which has resulted in some good time reading <laughs> good time writing a couple naps sometimes with the I think, dog I think all of our readers are wondering where does this go <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so yeah being outside be outside go touch touch grass it's good for you Touch grass, yes, right. yes. Touching grass thank, is good. Thank you for the recommendation, and uh, <laughs> my wife will be grateful for it. Oh <laughs> uh, well, mine is truly pathetic compared to to you. I mean, I did mention Gilead in the episode. I have been reading that, um, which is a great novel. Um, but I think I have to, I have to go with this show called Jury Duty. Um, my wife and I have been watching it. And, uh, you know, just a way to take a take a little bit of a break at the end of, of a day of corralling two boys who keep us on our toes. But it's a really interesting show. It's um, it's a it's a sort of mockumentary style comedy. And everyone in it is an actor except for one guy who doesn't know. So he thinks he's been called for real jury duty on a real case. But everything is 
fake. And wow. so it's it's him interacting with all these actors, not knowing they're actors. And uh, at times he even says things like, this is so crazy. This could be like a movie or something, you know? <laughs> it's so it's really funny and the characters are really uh endearing and kind of big personalities you know and um and uh and in fact the actor james marsden is in it playing himself um as if he is an actor who's been called to jury duty and everything so it's it's really really funny um we really is this a recent show. movie uh it's a tv show it came out i think it came out this year yeah yeah so yeah. so yeah. that's what we've been into lately definitely not as nice as uh as a 700 page book or being outside but it, it no. gets gets the job done <laughs> hey my my wife is pestering me to watch the first episode because she's watched a few and she thinks it's hilarious and so she's she keeps saying we should watch jury duty you should you should do it oh, when so you're this done is not just a movie this is like a, a number of episodes it's like i think mm -hmm. 12 episodes maybe or something oh, wow. yeah 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 so yeah well maybe when you're done playing outside creighton you can go watch <laughs> go watch an episode you could do that creighton I will. Well, awesome. Well, thanks again, Dr. Borsman, for coming on. It really is always a pleasure to get to get to spend time with you. It was very good to be with you and to see you again, Wesley, and uh, very good also to get to know you, uh, Creighton. And of course, listeners, yes, blessings to you. And, and listeners, remember, we have the giveaway um, that starts today. So make sure to retweet this episode from our Twitter account for a chance to win a copy of Pierced by Love. Uh, you can find Dr. Borsma's works at hansborsma.org, I believe. And um, what's the class you mentioned before we started recording your teaching class this summer at Neshota? What what class is that going to be? It's a it's a class on participation in East and West. Um, so I look at a, at a, a couple of, of theologians, especially focusing on um, well, beginning really with Augustine and moving to, to uh, Maximus and Dionys Dionysius and Maximus, um, dealing with Aquinas. It's a lecture type course. Excellent. Excellent. I'm sure that will be yeah. awesome. So, listeners, if you can get up to Neshota for that, you should. Well, yeah, Father Craig. I, I, I think the class is full already, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, but, well, never mind. You know, too, you can, too bad you can for check you. It out. <laughs> Well, uh, Father Creighton, could you close us with the collect for the second Sunday, uh, second Sunday in Advent? Absolutely. Uh, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>